Welcome to another episode of Conversations on Compassion. I'm Leslie Langbert. Today I am talking with author Resma Menachem. If you're in the Tucson area, you may recall that Resma was a featured author in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences tent at the Tucson Festival of Books this year. His book is called My Grandmother's Hands, and it is a powerful resource around helping to heal the impact of trauma that has been inflicted by these systems of racial oppression that we are all living under and have been for many generations in this country. The powerful thing about his book is that it's written for several different audiences. It's written for persons of color. It's written for those of us in white bodies. And there's a significant section for those who are working in law enforcement and police. Resma takes his training as a somatic therapist to really provide tools and ways for us to be able to come into noticing what we're holding, what we're carrying in our body, and how we can begin to heal that, specifically around these patterns that, that we carry. He's going to talk about that in more detail. I cannot recommend the book enough. It's really, really powerful. Resma and I are also talking today about compassion and I love the way that he describes it. I think you are too. He talks about it as being fierce. And there's a tremendous sense of, of love and depth in that. We talk about why diversity programs, why cultural competency trainings, why the intellectual approaches to undoing racism are not working why they're not enough. It's a really compelling conversation that is infused with hope and a lot of powerful truth. I hope that you enjoy this conversation. I'm hearing great things about my grandmother's hands. And oh, really? since, yeah, and since you were here, like people coming up to me and they're like, he was amazing. And that's really awesome that you brought him here. And I'm like, right? He is amazing. And yeah, it's, I'm hearing from people that they're like bringing people together and, and not just reading the book, but like working the book and having com conversations together. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's it exactly. That's, that's, you know, that is my, um, that is what I believe is going to be um, what I leave the earth with is that people realize that they're not defective and that there's things that they can do together and things that they can do um, apart. And there's things that we can do to abolish the supremacy of the white body and, and bring us, you know, more towards, you know, tapping into both our individual, you know, purpose uh, and the things that we're supposed to bring to the earth as well as our communal purpose and the things we're supposed to bring to the earth. So, you know, I, I love hearing that stuff. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so powerful. I was thinking about, um, you know, I come back myself. I feel like my grandmother's hands is a companion for me for my entire life. Wow. And, um, hmm. yeah, there's always, there's, you know, there's more layers. There's, there's more deepening, um, you know, strengthening the container to hold all of it to gradually begin to undo the things that have been translated down in my own lineage, right? And I'm so struck too by your book and and you and your work and everything that's really held with such this powerful sense of compassion. Oh. And that I think is is so powerful right now because I I know in my own experience just seeing and hearing and reading 
about mm-hmm. the the brutality, the yeah. ways in which people have seemed to have kind of lost touch with yeah. humanity in some ways. Yeah. That to hold that place of compassion to actually create a really powerful tool that says, so I'm going to invite you to come in to do your healing. Yeah. It's really huge. And so I want to talk a little bit about your journey and, and coming to develop this work of my grandmother's hands, but also the work that you're doing, you know, with this being sort of a living live teaching and work that you're doing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, to me, compassion, um, compassion is not a uh, milk toast principle. When you say when you say the word compassion in the, in the kind of larger world, there's almost this softened quality to it, right? Is you say you're you know resma, you know you're very compassionate or such and such you're compassionate. There is this kind of lilting sense of it, this kind of soft um, affect that comes along with saying somebody is compassionate. And I look at, I actually look at the word compassionate as actually um, a very hard, robust principle, right? Um, the, the, The part of the word compassion is passion. And passion has this kind of verve, this kind of energy this kind of like let's do it let, I, I, we got it you know there is a real inner a movement orientation to the word compassion that i think a lot of times people miss right there there's a quality of conviction with compassion right that 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 there is um that there is something to be done and so when people say compassion you know resma you the res um Grandmother's hands had a lot of compassion to it. It invited people into something that, like you said, you feel was missing. And what I would say is, is that part of what you picked up on in it was the inviting, but it was also the passion. It was also the purpose. It was also the conviction that you also tapped into as you were, as you were reading and processing and working. And that's the most important thing, working the book. Because the book is a working text. It is, not a, it is not a text that should be read. It is a worked text. And so when I think about the term, when I think about compassion, I think about doing. I think about purpose. I think about practice. I think about um, 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 moving. The, the, it is not just, it is not this soft, oh, I really care for you and we're going to hold hands and do kumbaya and walk down the street together and look deep into each other's eyes right <laughs> right when you when you're talking about when you're talking about real uh work around racial equity racial trauma historical trauma all that different type of stuff you better have something more to you than just flowers and rainbows and unicorns right you better have something in you that will allow you to sustain going through the fire of that, going through what it takes to burn, burn away all of the inadequacy, burn away the doubt, burn, burn into you some humbleness and some humiliation. You better have more than rainbows and unicorns when you're going through this. And so my, my compassion, the, the, the way I think about compassion is really a working compassion. It is, it is that I believe that every human being comes on the face of the earth with something, some unique gifts that they have that they must bring into the world. You don't get to that by, by, by looking deeply into people's eyes only. You get to that by going through some stuff, having stuff burn away and getting your butt back up consistently every day and working back to working towards that thing again. That's compassion to me. Yeah. It's fierce. That resonates so much. Yes. I mean, the, the practice, the practice of compassion is, as I understand it too, is, is really about how do we get in and start to like clear away the, yeah. 
the thought patterns, the behaviors, the things that are um, that are conditioned that actually right. create and sustain the suffering. Right. How do we get right. in and do that? And right. yeah, I love what you're saying about your book being um, a working book. Whenever I t- have been talking with people about it and, and saying, you know, you need to get a copy of this. I really emphasize it's not a book that you read. It's actually a book that you, that you work, that, That's you know, right. you make a right. commitment to and you yeah. carve out time and, and you yeah. get in and you uncover and have to learn how to be with yeah. before you can, you know, yeah. sort of feel like you can bypass or transform. Yeah. You know, right. one of the things that I want to kind of, um, I want to have you speak to is, this notion, this this idea, and I know this comes up a lot in conversations that I have with like other white folk is this sense of like wanting other people to get right, <laughs> you know, so sort of like seeing behaviors and, and you know, feeling that the anger and being like, you know, I want other people to get right, but sort of bypassing, you know, the piece of like, what is it within me? that is asking to be healed and transformed. Exactly. So, so white people got that stuff bad. They got that stuff bad. There's a, there's a, there's a racial hierarchy that, 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 uh, that happens in, um, uh, in white communities and white culture, especially those that see themselves as progressive and liberal, that with the, one of the first things that happens is that when you get white people, first of all, white people don't want to be in a room with each other. They especially, especially when you start to talk about race stuff, they all they want they want a they want a person of color in the room to quote unquote hold them accountable, right? Um, and without without taking to a uh, uh, take into account the amount of racial battle fatigue that 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 happens when you when people of color have to do that type of emotional labor. Um, and and what 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 I feel is the most important thing is that white bodies have to begin to get into a room with each other, deal with the uncomfortableness, deal with the hierarchies that start to begin to show up, deal with all the brutality that starts to happen with each other's bodies, and then figure out how they're going to develop a culture around beginning to heal that um, over time, right? How are they going to begin to, because what ends up happening is, is that when white bodies get into a room, they start to begin to do, and uh, begin to do this thing that a, that a colleague of mine, um, Rachel Martin says is elitification. White people love being the most woke white person in the room. They love being the most strategy oriented white person in the room. They all, they love being the most um, articulate white person in the room. But when that fire starts to burn, and you start to start thinking about how do we be as opposed to how do we do. Now, all of those intellects will either blow you out of the room or blow you closer together and make you begin to create a container by which all of those reactions can occur in. And so, and so one of the most important things for, for white bodies in particular is to come together without people of color, right? To come together, begin to do that grinding work Right. And then as they begin to do that grinding work, begin to see, are there people that they can begin to not come in and teach them, but people that they can begin to have uh, relationships with after they're going after they have been going through some type of process or some type of burning. I think that that people of color have to do the same thing because we have we have we have ingested the idea that the white body is the supreme standard of humanity also. So even within our own cultures and cross cultures, cross communities of colors cultures, there is this anti-blackness that's woven into the thing. There is this, these, these racial pieces that, but I want to be clear, the standard is still white body supremacy, even when I am damaging people of color. Even when people of color are damaging me, there is the, the, the subtext or the substandard or the standard is still that the white body is the standard by which we're doing this stuff. Uh, uh, to each other through. Um, there's a, I was watching, there's a white spoken word artist that I heard the other day and he said something that was, that, that made my brain kind of go click 
and, and go, yeah, that's it. And one of the things that he said is that when it comes to white people, and he was talking about his own people, when it comes to white people, it's important to realize that white body supremacy is the water, not the shark. And many times progressives are always looking for the Trump shark or the KKK shark or the Mike Pence shark or the, right? They're looking for the shark, right? But not the fact that they are steeped in the water. And when you, and when white progressives put themselves on this continuum of you got the Trumps over there and then you got the good white people over here, what ends up happening is that they forget that that, that, that continuum that, that, that they're on that says that they're the good one is actually a sliding continuum. Right. It is not a fixed continuum. It slides. And if and when white progressives is something that um, Jen White uh, has been saying lately is that um, um, progressive white supremacy is as damages as is, is as damaging as devout white supremacy. And what I mean by devout white supremacy is that those that are so devout and dedicated to to the destruction of people of color, the voice destruction of people of color. Those are the devout ones, right? But the progressive ones, um, that insidious type of, of white body supremacy, that even though they don't say it, that even though they say they don't believe in white body supremacy, they are, they are, they are steeped in white body supremacy. And, that, and those notions of who black people are in relation to who they are is still steeped in white body supremacy. And if that goes unexamined, they continue to wound people of color. And, they, and, and then fame, um, uh, and then won't take responsibility for that wounding. And so part of it for me is that when it comes to healing this thing around white body supremacy, white bodies have to begin to get together and figure out how they're going to begin to create a container, a cultural container by which they can begin to develop a culture to begin to actually attack it. White body, white, white body supremacy, the abolishment of white body supremacy currently as it stands, white people have no notion of how to begin to deal with that culture. They have a notion around segregation. They have a notion around assimilation. They have no notion around abolishing white body supremacy or racism or anti-racist things. They have strategy around it, but not culture. The KKK, the devout racists, have a, have a culture. They have symbol, they have color, they have music, they have dance, they have ways of speaking and ways of standing, ways of being, which all that different type of stuff. What does a white liberal have other than strategy and a racial resume, right? And if I'm a 14-year-old white boy, having music and symbols and a, and a, and a, and a shared historical understanding, even if I know that the shared historical understanding is abhorrent, I still have something that's, that steeps me more so than, more so than picketing and staying and, and sitting around um, some, some, you know, and, and some, you know, something that I'm protesting. That does not sustain culture. And until white liberals begin to actually develop a culture around uh, anti-racist, abolishing, uh, uh, somatically abolishing white body supremacy, until they begin to actually think about this as a culture and less as a strategy, they will continue to re-wound people of color. It speaks to, to me, this, the roots of, you know, talking about that there's strategy, but there's not culture around it. And one of the pieces that is so powerful, the way that you open the book is talking about, so where, where did this deep trauma begin? And talking about how the, the dismembering of, of bodies, the trauma that happened for many of the ancestors of white Americans whose, yeah. whose families, you know, immigrated here and, and you use the term, which I think is so powerful about um, that unresolved trauma being blown through right. bodies when they arrived. And right. when you're talking about this, this lack of, of culture to hold it, it makes me wonder if that's such a, such a big piece, you know, that, that idea that, you know, when, 
when folks immigrated here in order to assimilate, in order to have access to economic opportunities, that there was this gradual or sometimes maybe even, you know, relatively quickly, this um, loss of language, right? A loss of um, connection to the homeland. And there may have been even like a desire to, you know, leave that behind if it was, if it was deeply painful, but all of it is sort of that undigested, undigested trauma that ended up coming out and still continues to come out in all of these, in all of these different ways. And, and a lot of Mm -hmm. them are quite subtle, I think though, which is what you're talking about. There's clearly, you know, the things that are very profound that are, that are violent and they're right. very overt, but there's this whole, you know, that whole, like, we're looking for the shark, but it's, yep. you know, fish don't see the water they swim in. That's the subtlety. Right. Yeah. Right. I would, I would, I would take the, I would, I would tweak the word uh, subtle and make it decontextualized. Mm. That, that time decontextualizes trauma. All it takes is the march of time and the thing that, that, that wounded you or hurt you um, becomes, le- becomes more, uh, you, the con- you lose the context, right? Um, and so, you know, one of the things I think about when I think about white folks um, is the idea that um, uh, when you look at, the dark and middle ages. And this is just one moment in time that I looked at, right? That's how I kind of frame this. Now people might go back to other things, ice age, da, 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 all that different type of stuff. For me, the 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 middle ages is a is an important time for white people. Even though we know that the middle ages was not just white people, right? That's the myth, right? Whenever you look at all of these things like Harry Potter and 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 the Game of Thrones and all that different type of stuff. You swear there was no black people in the Middle Ages. You swear you swear that there was no 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 there was <laughs> so no, no really thin white people with blue eyes and big you know bright teeth and anyway. <laughs> so 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 the reality is this is that that the Middle Ages was a particular particularly brutal time for Europe, right? All of the, all of the, the so I, so when I'm looking at things, I look at the five brutalities, right? Colonialism, um, enslavement, genocide, uh, imperialism, and land theft, right? And when I look at those five brutalities and I apply those five brutalities to Europe, those things along with along with um, uh, public, public uh, dismemberment, along with rapes, along with uh, um, uh, the Inquisitions, along with uh, uh, the Crusades, along with famine, along with plagues, along, right, all, a lot, a lot, a lot of brutality existed. And that existed from about 500 AD to about approximately 1500, right? Then we start moving into the Enlightenment and all these other things, right? But, but, but during that time, you're talking about a thousand years of elite white bodies destroying less elite white bodies, right? Destroying people, taking people's land, committing genocide, uh, all of that different type of stuff was happening for a thousand years on that body. Right, and then in 1492, that body came here. Mm-hmm. Right, and one of the things we know about trauma is that trauma becomes decontextualized, and over time can look like culture, and over time can look like family traits, and over time can look like personality. And that once that body came here with all that brutality, I believe when they saw the first indigenous people. No matter how beautiful, how nice, how much these people wanted to help, no matter how much they did help, that trauma could only see those people 
as something to be conquered and made into noble savages, right? Made into um, Christian, because that has what been happened to him. That is what happened to them, right? <laughs> that that you had to take all of that energy and blow it through something, and now it looks like culture, or it looks like you know the doctrine of discovery. You know, we're just discovering these people and you don't even see the people and so all of that trauma all of that trauma that never got settled that never got dealt with that never got uh, uh metabolized now gets blown through everything that you see and the people the land the environment the understanding everything gets blown through and needs to be uh manipulated now that's 1492 then in 1619, you bring the first enslaved Africans to this country, right? And what I tell people all the time is that the idea of the white body being the supreme standard by which all bodies humanity shall be measured, that idea and, and the operationalization of it existed before, before America became America, right? So in 1619, America was not America. America was a colony. And I think it's interesting that America was a colony because what that means to me is that colonies are filled with colonized people, right? Mm -hmm. We forget that piece when we talk about the 13 colonies, that they were filled with colonized people. What, what do we mean by colonized? We know what we mean by colonized people. So one of the things that happens is when in 1619 the the Africans, uh, the enslaved Africans come here, it is not until 1680, even though the white body supremacy was operationalized before that, in 1680 is the first time you begin to see the idea of, in Virginia law, the idea of white persons, right? That's when you start to see that those things that word white persons, not landholding persons, not persons with property, right? But but white persons. And at the moment that that was ensconced in law, you at that moment ushered in white body supremacy. Yeah. That the white body was the supreme now you have hierarchies in that right but the white body in comparison to other bodies was the standard and is the standard of humanity right mm -hmm. and so once that happened once the creation of the white body was uh, and the supremacy of the white body was established and and even poor white people were able to take advantage of it at that moment the antithesis was all also created, right? So if you have the white body as the standard of humanity, you must have something that is not the standard of humanity or juxtaposed to the standard. And, and anti-blackness and the black body has always been that, um, that antithesis. It's why whenever, no matter what culture you talk about, the darker the people are in that culture, the more, the more they're compared to monkeys the more they're compared to primates, right? That is, not, that is not an accident. That is the antithesis of humanity. And humanity is, the measurement of humanity is the white body. So, now I just said all of that. And, it, and, and you have another 100 years, 1776, before America actually becomes America, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So all of what I just said is in the soil of America and being in the soil is seeded with that understanding. Yeah. And so when you have somebody like Trump now, who is a devout racist, right? Different than the passive or the progressive racist, still in the same con sliding continuum, but what he does is voice what's actually in the soil, right? And, and, and so when he says, Go back to where you come from, to these, uh, to these four 
uh, women of color, right? What he's speaking to is what's in the soil of America. So even though his people didn't come, even though my people have been here since since some maybe before the 1600s, right? Um, even though native uh, indigenous people have been been here for millennia, right? Mm -hmm. What's in the soil is that the white man and the white body is standard. So when you say something as a person of color. That 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 is that pushes against your notion that everything is cool and everything is equitable. Your genuflect is that I understand it, so I get to determine as a devout racist white-bodied man who stays, who goes, and I have dominion over every and have access and dominion over, to to everybody and everybody that exists. And when I mean body, I mean body that exists that is in the water that's not the shark that's the water he's speaking to that ethos and what people do is that they clutch their pearls and not see that there's there's actually really an articulated knowledge that he's that he's bringing forth not knowledge that i want to teach but knowledge in terms of the ethos in terms of what is in the soil of america and so in some ways, the, 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 the devout racist that Trump is and everybody that he's filled his cabinet with, the, the, right, his, his, the government with, this devout racistness is within the soil. He's voicing it. Passive progressives will never voice it, but it's still in the soil that they can take advantage of, right? And, 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 so, um, and so to me, this idea of how we look at race, racism, and trauma, because white body supremacy is trauma. Right. It is a traumatizing, organizing principle of America. If we, if we don't begin to understand it in that context, it, we will look at it as incidental as opposed to foundational. When we come back from this pause, Resma talks about building resiliency and why radical self-care and self-discipline are essential to strengthening it. Stay with us. One of the things that struck me so much, and this is, I feel like you're, you're bringing us to this part now, is like this contextualizing of the bigger picture and what's in the soil. And then bringing it back to the individual. Yeah. And there's been so much, um, so many different models and strategies around how to dismantle racism. Um, there's, you know, these different initiatives around equity and inclusion and diversity and all of these different things that that sound that <laughs> sound great and have right. They're well-intentioned, um, but they stay like up here in the realm of, of like, the mind, in the head, exactly. And so bringing this into using somatics, coming into the body, using your, your skill as a trauma therapist to actually begin to... Um, to to offer uh, these ways of being able to heal the body, I want to speak to that, but I don't I don't want this to be that. Obviously, this is on. There is so much work um, for those of us that are that are in white bodies to like really get in and do this and and look at that and explore that healing. So I do want to touch on that, but I also want to touch on speaking to our brothers and sisters that are out there that are that are, you know, from, from your, from what, what you want to say, what you want to offer from your heart around what's brought you to do this and how those that are on the receiving end most direly mm. can begin to use these tools too as a way to 
sustain, to strengthen that resilience, to continue to honor and to stand strong. Yeah. So, 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 um, first of all, I want to say to those who are out here in the trenches and doing this work that if you never hear this from anybody else, I want you to hear this from me. You are not defective. You are not wrong. You are not crazy. Something is happening and has continued to happen to your people. And the work that you're trying to do is important, is necessary. And your self-care is so important. And, and I want to just say something about the self-care piece. I'm not talking about going to get a massage, right? To me, self-discipline is self-love. Your ability to have some self-discipline around what it takes for you to have a sense that you are whole, good, and that you matter is about having a, the self-discipline to take care of yourself daily and giving yourself what you need consistently every day, even when you don't feel like it, to do that daily. And so I just want to say to, to, to all my brothers and sisters who are out here doing it, you are not defective and you're going to, and we have to figure out both individually and communally how to bring more self-discipline to ourselves um, so that we can continue to stay into the fight, right? I do want to say something about the words diversity, inclusion, and there's another one that's been, that I've been hearing lately and it just, it just makes me roll my eyes. Is um, cultural agility. That's right? a new one for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a new one. It just—I just started hearing it a lot in the circle. Cultural agility. Not how do we how do we begin to look at and and develop somatic abolitionist communities, right? How not how do we begin to confront and abolish white body supremacy and and develop anti-racist communities? Not that. Let's become more culturally agile, right? All of these terms are terms that make passive, white body, uh, progressive uh, supremacists make them feel better, mm -hmm. right? Because none of those will acknowledge genocide. Diversity does not, cultural diversity does not usually acknowledge genocide does not usually acknowledge land theft or colonialism or imperialism or enslavement. It usually doesn't acknowledge those, right? One of the things that I want to I wanted to impart is that when we talk about these terms, these terms have a particular cultural context, right? And they usually don't fit the context of the people that have been genocided. They usually don't fit the context of the people that have been enslaved, right? And so what I want to say is this, whenever somebody says to me, diversity, the next question, if you're creating a different culture, not just a strategy, but a different culture, the next question that should come up in you, in your vessel, in your very somatic, uh, in your body, should be the question, diverse from what? Because when you talk about diversity, what you're saying is there is a standard and then we're bringing something in or diversifying from that standard, right? That's what diversity means. Diversity either means bring something in to, to have some uh, more flexibility or to move away from, diversify, right? That's what when we, so when we say diversity, we never ask the question from what? And we all know it. We all know it. We intrinsically know it, but if you never landed it, you never say, when we say diversity, we are saying we are diversifying from the standard that the white body is the supreme standard of humanity, and we want to bring in other things. That's what we mean, but we never say that. 
So what diversity ends up being as a genuflect is um, is food, music, um, uh, uh, identity, right? That's what it ends up being. Other than saying we are diversifying from the standard of, of, of white people being the standard of humanity. That's what we mean when we say diversity. Same thing with inclusion. What do we... What, what, so if you're going to include something in, right. right, you must start with something first. Who's doing the include? Like, what are you bringing? Like, what's the, what are you what keeping the, out? What, yeah. What are you keeping out? What is the, what, who, what is the standard? Like, if you start with inclusion that we want to include something, you're saying that, that there is a standard by which you're bringing something into. What is the standard by which we're bringing something? We're including these other communities and cultures into the standard of the white body being the supreme standard of right. So, so as people who are developing culture, we have to talk differently. We have to be differently. That being and talking differently and that language difference has to come up out of culture. If you don't start with a container by which you can begin to have these reactions begin to occur in, then you never, ever begin to create a culture. And white, and what ends up happening is that the white bodies who are out here doing the work, what ends up happening is that they end up not being able to sustain the work. Because the moment they start getting, getting pushback, they're using the same language and the same tone and the same quality in their somatic body and the same vibratory response. And they have not calibrated any difference. So their body experiences without challenge the same as somebody who's not doing the work, as the devout racist or the passive racist. There is no cultural change so they don't they don't enter into the world differently mm-hmm. even if they're out here doing strategy that's the thing about building the cultural container if you don't do it and you're not up against other bodies and you're not loving other white bodies and you're not creating culture around other white bodies and you're not speaking a different language you will genuflect to the language that currently is standard and the current language that is standard is a racist understanding, is a racist ideology. It is in the soil. It was here before America became America. The five, the five countries, the five superpowers that created the, the slave trade, right, were Dutch, French, English, Portuguese, and Spain, right? Those five countries existed before they participated in the, in the enslavement trade. So they have some other references points in terms of them as a culture that they can go to before this, right? America did not. America is steeped and was born up out of the enslavement and the genocide, right? Mm-hmm. The other cultures had that. But in terms of the racialized component of it and the anti-blackness component of it, that is a unique structure. And then once that was developed, once that idea of white, the whiteness and the white body being the supreme standard, it then exported that to the other parental countries, right? Because it has utility. If, 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 if I see a white person and then I see a, a, a black person, there is this shorthand that exists in the soil that says one is more human than the other. That has utility in all of the other countries. That had utility in Spain. That had utility in England. That had ut- in Britain. That had utility in uh, in Dutch. That had, you see what I mean? So that so that so the progeny of the idea of the white body being the supreme standard had utility even in the parental uh the parental countries right so so that so when i'm thinking about these pieces around what happens to the people that are out here doing this work this is why i believe that the people that are out doing this work have to create culture and have to create uh have to create for themselves both both um both communal 
and individual ways of developing self-discipline in order to uh, in order to um, compound the self-love that it's going to take to do this work. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we can't think our ways into think ourselves into changing these systems. It really comes down to this the the beauty to me of of the work that you're that you're offering is framing in a very easy to understand way what happens to our bodies what happens to our nervous systems when we take in experiences that are ours but also you know really speaking to what we're learning from epigenetics around yes. how trauma is translated yeah and how we our bodies actually can react in ways that are that are unexpected that we may not have a particular um, context for and then there's this reactive uh, behavior that right. oftentimes ends up leading in um, really serious either threat or actual violence to another body that's right um, so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the um, some of the ways, some of the exercises, some of the ways that you've brought this in to my grandmother's hands, and how that has resonated so strongly yeah. for you as as the gift to to offer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For us to begin to undo this within right. our own bodies that then can hopefully transform personality and family dynamics right. and eventually right. culture. That's right. So, 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 so this is why I say it's a working text is because the practices are practices that I'm really encouraging people to do. To, so I'm, I'm, I'm telling people that in, in terms of the, my grandmother's hands, you have to go through that book, you know, at least four, five, six times. Um, because, because there are practices, all of the practices you can do individually, right? So you read the book, you do the practices and you're just like, okay, wow, that's something. But then if you do that practice now with a truck, with a dyad, right? With another person and you actually have them witness you doing the practice and then you witness them doing the practice, something else then begins to occur, Right. Then if you do the practices and you do it as a triad where you have now, you're doing the practice, you have somebody witness you and then somebody observing both of you as you're doing the practices. Now there's a depth that begins to come into play that there's, there is vulnerability that shows up when you do that. There are all of these, uh, there could be these reflexive protective um, mechanisms that, that begin to show up. And then in that heat that gets turned up, you have to begin to learn how to both language it and learn how to manage it and learn how to metabolize it. And that happens in real time. And if you keep getting reps around that, all of a sudden you notice you have more room by which you can begin to both sustain and uh, manage all of the energies that show up as you're starting to move through this racially, mm -hmm. right? And so for me, my grandmother's hands, the, 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 the real beauty in it is, is really about how you begin to, how you can begin to use the book to scale up, right? And, 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 and each time you learn something new about yourself and, and I, I think about it as, I call it the suffering's edge or the burning's edge, right? Is that, is that all of the intellect that you have pales in comparison to your survival stuff. And if you never get reps around how to manage the survival stuff, not just overriding, but manage it, what happens is, is that you have a unique perspective that says to you, I've learned everything that I need to learn. I've gotten everything that I need to, that I need to get. But something about this work pushes you to begin to say, ooh, I just discovered a new edge. <laughs> mm -hmm. I've just discovered a new learning's edge that I thought I had already dealt with. That I thought that, I, or I didn't even know that 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 those reflexes in me 
those those vibratory reflexes, those those image and thought reflexes, those meaning reflexes, those behavioral reflexes, those affective feeling reflexes, those 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 sensational reflexes, right? That all of those pieces are important for me. And now I'm learning something because I'm continuing to go through the reps and I get stronger and learn and get more space on my nervous system and more growth of my nervous system so I can grow even more. That happens with my grandmother's hands because I'm pushing people in the book to slow down. It happens at my website, resma.com, R-E-S-M-A-A.com. On my website, I have some classes, right? Because I want people to, if they want to access it through the book, cool. If they want to access it through the audio, cool. If they want to access it through having a class and looking at some of the classwork, um, they can access it there. This is all about getting people to realize that in that suffering's edge. So what, so, so what I say is that when you're walking towards the heat and towards the fire, and, and when you're walking towards, uh, um, I kind of look at it in, 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 my, in my mind's eye, I see it as kind of like a burning sun. And as you walk towards the sun, the, the closer you walk towards the sun, the more you sweat, right? <laughs> the more you begin to question, am I going in the right direction? This is getting awfully hot, right? Um, the more you start to stink, the more you start to, uh, 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 things start to be, that you thought you had dealt with, the more boredom starts to set in, the more, um, um, questioning, the more uh, uh, a physical pain you start to experience, the more you walk towards the sun. Things begin to happen simply because you take one step and then you take another step. And one of the things that happens is you begin to learn what you thought your limitations were and what they actually are, right? And as you move closer to that thing, what happens is, is that the heat starts to both bring these things up and it also starts to begin to force you to get stronger. It forces you to develop, to develop language. It forces you to begin to develop a, a what I call a more of a fortified mind. It forces you to thicken your skin. It forces you to, at the same time that you're developing a fortified mind, and your skin begins to thicken, it also forces you to balance that with a flexible heart, right? As you walk closer. The other thing that it does is it burns away the things, it burns away things like inadequacy. It burns in humbleness. It burns away um, self-doubt. Because more of you, as you, the, the closer you get towards that sun, the more of yourself begins to be revealed. And that begins to burn away. And this is so important for white people as it relates to race, right? As it relates to race, the more burning, the, the, the burning fire for white people is to walk towards race and towards creating a cultural container and, and both communally and individually, so more of their stuff can be burned away. One of the things that happened for many white folks is one of the first things that happened when they got here is that they freely gave up their name and their language. Mm -hmm. It was burned out of my people, right? You know, um, it was, you know, and so part of what has to happen is that white folks have to go and reclaim, right? Not just as, but specifically around how race was set up for them to give that up freely, right? And so one of the things that I believe is that when you're going through that fire and the doubt and everything is starting to, to happen, one of the things that also happens for, for, for us is that we know that all we have to do to stop the pain is to just stop moving that if I stop walking towards the fire, the burning will stop. I won't sweat as much if I just stop. 
And, and you're absolutely right. You will actually feel better. You will actually get all of the, um, all of the, all of the things that were being taken from you because you're speaking up, because you're doing things, because you're speaking a different language, because you're developing a different culture. All of that stuff, all of the, the cascading away will begin to stop. And what will happen is that all of the doubt and all of the pieces that you were and all of the inadequacies, now all of that stuff was that was being burned away now congeals. Right? And if you want to even, if you want to begin to uh, take more pain away, all you got to do is take a step backwards. And now all of a sudden you've taken a step backwards and now the heat is not so intense. Then you take another step backwards and it's even less intense, right? And this is the difference between clean pain and dirty pain is that now each step you take back what you also know you, you experienced the dirtiness of. Mm. And now and now you take another step back and now you move out to Oregon and cut your, your white dreads off and nobody and you marry another white boy or a white woman and now nobody knows that you was in the trenches and you were building something else, right? but you also understand what dirty feels like, mm -hmm. right? You understand it and nothing's going wrong. You just are, have now decided that the gifts that you were supposed to bring into the world, you're now going to die with and you're all right with. You're all right with the dip, with the gifts that you were supposed to bring into the world to change things. You're all right with now dying with those gifts and those gifts dying around you and looking at you as you die when, at 97, right? You know that your gifts that you were supposed to bring into the world are now dying with you and you, and you know you made a conscious effort to do it. So this is why I'm saying if you don't have a community and you don't have people <laughs> to, to, that you're building a container with, Mm -hmm. then all you're doing is building strategy. What I tell white people when they say, well, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm saying, I'm not asking who your book club is. I'm not asking what your affinity group is. I'm asking who your people are. And if you can't tell me what that is, then you just, you're, just doing, you're just doing strategy. So. Rasma, every time we talk, I feel like I want to talk with you for hours and hours. I come away with so much to take in and process and digest. I'm always inspired and I'm so grateful to you for helping me and helping all of us that, that work with my grandmother's hands to help us move toward that, that fire and to transform it. That's right. You are a beautiful man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I, this is this is my life's work. This is my life's purpose. This is this is very very clear to me. You know, I always I think about my ancestors and and I think about Fannie Lou Hamer. I think about uh, uh, um, uh, James Baldwin. I think about Sister Lord. I think about all of the people who um, who have said exactly the same things that I've said in much more eloquent ways. And all I'm doing is, is standing, is really just standing beside them, standing on their shoulders and, and, and articulating something that my people have been saying, you know, uh, for hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years. And so it's just my, it's my little grain in, in the sand. And, and so um, I, I, I'm, I'm just very grateful that people are listening. I'm grateful that people are doing something with it. And I'm grateful more than anything, I'm grateful that people who are reading the book and engaging with me and other people, that they're, they're realizing that they're not crazy, they're not defective, and the work that they're doing is a beautiful work. They're bringing the, their gifts in, and it does matter. So that's the way I think about this.
Thank you so much. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Friends, I highly, highly recommend getting a copy of My Grandmother's Hands. It is an amazing tool, an amazing resource. And if you want to learn more about Resma's really powerful work, visit his website, resma.com, that's spelled R-E-S-M-A-A.com. been produced by Leslie Langbert in the Center for Compassion Studies in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences, recorded by Gary Darnell, edited by Gary Darnell. Special thanks to the University of Arizona's Office of Instruction and Assessment.